I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Cato Institute, which George Will described the other day as the foremost upholder of the idea of liberty in the nation that is the foremost upholder of the idea of liberty. I think that's a great term. I know that many of you here in the audience have been here before, but I want to take a moment to remind you of some of our new activities if you haven't been here in a while. Um, if you haven't been on our website, Cato.org, recently, you should check out two new things, our online magazine, Cato Unbound, and our new blog, Cato at Liberty. And don't miss some of our new studies, like Downsizing the Federal Government, and one of the most recent is Power Surge, the constitutional record of George W. Bush. Today... We're very honored to have with us one of the most familiar and most controversial faces in network television. After more than 30 years in television journalism and more than 20 years at ABC News, John Stossel is now co-anchor of the highly rated news magazine 2020. He also anchors his own hour-long specials, and his Give Me a Break segments on 2020 are sort of like broadcast op-eds. As he talks about in his books, critics frequently accuse him of bias. What they mean is that he does not share the prevailing bias in American journalism against markets, against individual choice and responsibility, and in favor of government regulation. Sometimes it's easy for a uniform bias to masquerade as journalistic objectivity. I remember one of the first times I noticed John's work was when he did, at the end of the 1980s, a uh, brilliant exposition of the benefits of deregulation during the 80s. And at the end of it, he sat down with the show's then-hosts, Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs, and Hugh Downs said, gosh, John, that was amazing. It had never occurred to me that there were any benefits to deregulation. <laughs> well, that tells you something about the nature of the world John lives in. It never occurred to them. No one else had ever suggested, gee, maybe there are pros and cons to deregulation. John's first special of his own back in 1994 was called, Are We Scaring Ourselves to Death? And he did a town hall meeting after producing it, and I was there. And I remember, as he would show each segment and talk about environmental risks versus other kinds of risks, the other people in the studio audience would gasp. It was like they'd never heard this before. And I know that some of them were environmentalist activists, environmentalist organizers. And for 25 years, they had had unchallenged domination of television journalism. And suddenly, a journalist on ABC News was asking whether they were right. So that's one of the things that has driven them up the wall, is they didn't think they were supposed to get questioned in places like that. He's done, <clears throat> excuse me, he's done lots of other specials since then. And it's hard to pick a favorite because they're all so good. There was one called Freeloaders about all the people who seek a free lunch from the public trough. And there was one called Greed that asked whether Michael Milken had done more good for society than Mother Teresa. And then there was Is America Number One, which featured such disparate commentators as the Blue Man Group and Cato's own Tom Palmer. And then there was Sex, Drugs, and Consenting Adults, which I don't have to describe. And John Stossel goes to Washington. He came up with a clever idea based on his own career. What if a consumer reporter went to Washington to see if we're getting our money's worth? 
These specials and his regular segments on 2020 drive some leftists wild. They're used to having the national media more or less on their side, and it just drives them crazy to encounter a dissident voice. Conservatives set up media watchdog groups to keep an eye on ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, CNN, NPR, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. Leftists set up watchdog groups to keep an eye on John Stossel. (laughs) And, of course, what makes their task so difficult is two problems. First, his shows bring in viewers, and that keeps ABC happy, even if they don't quite understand the ideas he's talking about. And second, John has a very distinguished career in the broadcast industry. He's the recipient of the George Polk Award for Outstanding Local Reporting, the George Foster Peabody Award, and 19 Emmys. And he was also honored five times by the National Press Club for Excellence in Consumer Reporting. And now he's written his second book. The other day it was up to number seven on the Amazon charts. When you read it, you'll see that it sounds just like John Stossel talking. It sounds like the way he delivers ideas on television. A couple of years ago, he did a book called Give Me a Break, How I Exposed Hucksters, Cheats, and Scam Artists and Became the Scourge of the Liberal Media. Today, he's here to talk about his new book, Myths, Lies, and Downright Stupidity. Please welcome John Stossel. Thank you, David. That's very kind. And this is the foremost upholder of liberty and the country that is the foremost upholder of liberty. But then that saddens me because it doesn't feel to me as if we're winning the hearts and minds when we try to explain the benefits of liberty to people. Hence, I wrote the book, and I'm going to put it up here because C-SPAN's here, and this is good when C-SPAN is here. You're sort of people who tune in late. I'll even put it over here. It's less less in front. But I have a chapter. Some of the myth book is consumer myths about how it's okay to marry your cousin and how your dog's mouth is not cleaner than yours. This is amazing how people can ignore empirical evidence. You just watch your dog, and yet people, where he puts his mouth, people say the dog's mouth is cleaner. But the part dearest to my heart are the issues that Cato and David bring up. Um, I have a chapter called Clueless Media, which is about part of it, because I don't understand the hostility to markets among my colleagues. And one chapter called Bashing Business. Capitalism has lifted more people out of the misery of poverty than any system ever. And yet, wherever I've worked, in every newsroom, it is sneered at. At Princeton, it was sneered at when I went there. And I'm I'm still trying to understand what this is about. Is some of it because reporters envy the wealth? And it's true. One side effect of free markets is some people will be vastly richer than others. This sort of... an an ugliness about that. But I don't think it's just hatred of the rich because look how people in Europe didn't hate the kings and queens and dukes and earls. They hated the bourgeoisie, the people who sold them the very stuff that they needed to survive. But they hated the idea that they took direct profit from them. 
Thomas Sowell argues that this is the reason for the persecution of the Jews in Europe and Pakistanis in Africa, Chinese in Southeast Asia, Koreans in some American ghettos, that there is a resentment of people who directly take money from you. I can understand why people in Washington would feel this way because politics is a zero-sum game. If one congressman wins, somebody else loses. But my colleagues don't get that business is not a zero-sum game. Hollywood doesn't get it. Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street says it's a zero-sum game. But it's not. If Bill Gates has $30 billion, it doesn't mean we have $30 billion less. Business people, because business is voluntary... They make the pie bigger. Business creates wealth. Business transactions don't happen unless both parties win. There's this weird moment if you buy some milk where you give the clerk your money and she gives you the milk and you say, thank you, thank you. I mean, what's the double thank you about? It's because you wanted the milk more than you wanted the buck. She wanted the buck more than she wanted the milk. The transaction doesn't happen unless you both win. Yet my colleagues don't get that. And People hate their employers who, who pay them and, and love the government, which takes 40% of our money and squanders it. I, uh, partly through reading the fine work done by scholars at the Cato Institute and other places, have seen the light and seen the benefits of the market. So at least I was ready when I was asked to do a story on education. And the educrats of the teachers' unions say education of the children is just something much too important to leave it to the vagaries of market competition. And that tends to make skeptics back off. The government, a government monopoly has to run the education system. But it's also intuitive that it's a complicated world out there. We want wise elites in state capitals in Washington, D.C. to set the rules, to make sure it's fair, to make sure no one is left behind. It's not intuitive that market competition would work for education, but it will. The shame, again, is that we take capitalism's success for granted. We don't even think about the miracles it performs all the time. Here's an idea that I stole from David Bowes. He stole it from Tom Palmer. Isn't it amazing that you can go to a foreign country and stick a piece of plastic in a wall and cash will come out? You take the same card to a stranger who doesn't even speak your language, and he'll rent you a car for a week. And when you get home, MasterCard will have the accounting to the penny. But the government can't even count the votes in Florida. <laughs> Yet the teachers say the education of the children has to be left to this government monopoly. Well, I argue that the market would do it better. It took me 20 years of the work that's in the myth book to see that, but it is clearly so true. I mean, think of the monopolies that we've had to live with. Think of the old phone monopoly. We now forget that all the phones were black, all the calls were expensive. It was illegal to plug in a phone answering machine. They called it a foreign device. Only through deregulation do we get all the choices that we have now. Think of the post office. The post office said we can't get it there overnight. It's not possible. They had all kinds of reasons why it wasn't possible. And then they got competition. FedEx, UPS, others got it there overnight. Now even the post office does it sometimes. <laughs> competition inspires us to do things we didn't think we possibly could do and do it for less money. 
So why not harness that to teach the kids? Now, people say, well, a choice is scary. Uh, some kids will be left behind. Uh, my kid's school also. My kid's school's fine. And it's true. On the surveys, most Americans say the public school system isn't very good, but their kid's school is good. Now, part of this, because they don't know what they could have had. One part is that the school may be conning them and saying, oh, yes, he's making progress and test results are fine, but they, they keep changing the baseline. So the best tests are the international tests where American students are compared to kids from 41 other countries. And what's so interesting about these tests is that American kids do pretty well in the fourth grade. But the longer they are in American schools, the worse they do, the more they fall behind. And by 12th grade, they're way behind countries that spend much less on education, much less developed countries than America. Now we, we, for a program I did called Stupid in America, I wanted to call it education, but my boss said, you know, we have competition here. We have to get people to watch. 2020 is off the air if people don't watch. We can't. People won't tune in for education. We'll call it stupid. <laughs> and I resisted because I didn't want to imply I was calling the teachers stupid or the students stupid, but it clearly is stupid to have a government monopoly teach the kids, so I was comfortable with the title. And for part of that, we gave part of the international test to students in Belgium and students in New Jersey. And we didn't cherry pick. We picked an above average school in New Jersey, and New Jersey scores above average for America. But the Belgian kids cleaned the New Jersey kids' clocks. They got 70% correct versus 40% for the New Jersey kids. One Belgian kid said, uh, the test was so easy, I think that if the kids in America couldn't do this, they're really stupid. <laughs> the kids, a girl in New Jersey said, I don't think we're stupid. It must be the schools. It is. The people who run the international tests and who have documented that countries like Poland, much less developed, do better, say the biggest determinant of what makes a school system work well are two things. One, autonomy for the school. If the school is free to try things, doesn't have its hands tied by a lot of centralized rules, they do better. And above all, the second point, if the, parents, the customers, the parents and the kids have choice, if the money is attached to the kid so the child can take, can take that money, the state money, to any school, a government school, a secular school, religious school, public school, private school, any school, that causes the competition that makes everybody better. We interviewed the principal of a school in Belgium who said, yeah, competition is very difficult. If we don't offer them what they want for their child, they won't come to our school. We have to work hard day after day. Otherwise, you run out of business. You can't afford 10 teachers that don't do their work because our clients will know and they won't come to you again. But in America, no school is ever closed. The clients are the kids. The parents and the kids are trapped. Which brings us to some of the myths. I, the format of this book is myth and truth. One myth is the public schools are underfunded, and that's all we hear in America. If they only had more money to spend. But they're spending three times the amount that they spent when I went to school, adjusted for inflation, it's tripled, and the test scores are flat. We're now spending about $10,000 per student. In Washington, it's 14000 But just take the 10000 average for America. Do the math. That's 25 kids in a classroom, $250,000 per classroom. 
And that's not the capital expenditures. That's the operating cost. Think what you could do for 250000 You could hire three great teachers. It's not about the money. We found schools that charge much less but do a wonderful job. We shot schools that charge $3,000, one in South Carolina where the state average is $8,000. The kids were excited about learning. When we came in to shoot, they were jumping up and down saying, can we do relay math? Can we play bingo? Can we teach? Can we play phonics around the world? This woman, who had been disgusted by the government monopoly where she was, started her own school, and she was helping these kids learn for less than half the money when the government schools hadn't been able to do that. Another myth, teachers are underpaid. Everybody says that. My answer to that is, under what? What does that mean in a free society? In a free society, if a profession is underpaid, nobody wants to apply for it. But in America, you have five to ten applicants for every teaching job. Ten to one ratios, five to one ratios. Teaching isn't underpaid. It's a joyous job. You get to help children. Lots of people want to do that. Plus, teachers make above $7,000 more than the average wage in America. And don't forget, they got a lot of time off. They get the summers off. So the government says if you do an hour-by-hour comparison, teachers make more than chemists, psychologists, registered nurses, computer programmers. Of course, if they had choice, they make the good teachers would make much more. If we're spending $250,000 per classroom or in Washington, $300,000 per classroom, good teachers would be making $200,000 if parents had a choice, if you had a market. For our show, we focused one segment on South Carolina, where the legislature did consider the governor's school choice plan and voted it down and cheered. And the state school superintendent told me it was a great victory for education because choice was unproven and unaccountable. But the nerve of the bureaucrat to talk about market competition is unaccountable. It's how politicians think. They think of accountability as when you can vote the mayor out if you don't like the schools. So once every four years, maybe you can have a change in leadership. What they don't get is the market provides accountability minute by minute. I mean, every year the parent has a choice, but constantly we're making decisions about which product to pick, and that is far superior to government accountability. If the principal in a private system doesn't do her job well, she loses her job. That makes her perform better. Now, people say choice is scary because some parents will make bad choices. Some parents don't care. Those kids will be left behind. But here, too, people underestimate the power of the market to help even the people whose parents don't give a damn. As an example, away from schools, let's look at cars. Do you understand what makes one car run better than another or safer than another? I don't. But it's hard to get really ripped off buying a car in America. Compare the worst you can buy here with the best the planned economies could produce. And that's the Trabant. Remember it? The pride of the Eastern Bloc, that East German car. What happened to it? It disappeared as soon as the Berlin Wall fell. Now why? Why was their best unable to compete with our worst? Because not everybody has to be an expert or be really paying attention for the market to work. You just need a few people, a few car buffs, or a few people who read the car magazines. And through word of mouth, the good providers thrive and the bad ones atrophy. 
the market would protect the children of the indifferent parents too. I mean, look at a supermarket. 30,000 products in an average supermarket. Breads cost pennies. Nobody has to be an expert. The market helps the rich and the poor. And yet the unions and the educrats say it's too important to leave it to the market. Now, the only thing worse than a rigid government monopoly is a rigidly unionized government monopoly. And that's what we have in my hometown, New York City. When you pay everyone the same and pretty much guarantee their jobs, you're rewarding mediocrity. This isn't fair to the kids. The man who heads our school system now is the man who used to live here and run Bill Clinton's Justice Department's attack on that evil monopoly, Microsoft, Joel Klein. It's ironic now that he's running the biggest monopoly east of China. <laughs> but he didn't really draw the connection. He's, he argues that the schools are different. They have to be run by the government. But at least he got the concept that he had a problem with the union work rules and the 206-page union contract and said that out of, he has 80,000 teachers. He'd only been able to fire two over two years for incompetence. The rules are so hard to wade through. The principals barely even try. They just try to get the guy, squeeze him out. Maybe Would you transfer to this other school? There's even jargon for it around the country. It's called the Dance of the Lemons. <laughs> now, I interviewed the head of the teachers' union, and she said, oh, these principals just aren't trying. There are steps. You can get rid of a bad teacher. Uh, they just don't try. And I ask about that, but here are the steps. Could you try? This is what it takes to fire an inept teacher in, in New York. <laughs> you can't see it, but you get the idea. Joel Klein had one teacher who sent sexual emails to his 16-year-old student, Cutie 101. Took them seven years to get rid of this guy. Well, they kept having to pay him. They even have warehouses for the teachers that they think are so bad, they don't even want to let them near the kids. And they store these teachers. They have to come to work and sit there all day. It costs about $20 million a year. They call these places the rubber rooms. <laughs> now, all the rules are well intended. It's to make sure the principal doesn't hire his brother-in-law or fire someone capriciously. And governments need these rules, I guess. But if you had a market competition, you don't need them because the guy who hires his brother-in-law, if the brother-in-law is incompetent, he goes out of business. Market competition polices itself far better than government rules. Insane as this chart is, the teachers' union continues to defend the rules passionately. Another myth, vouchers. I mean, vouchers are hated in America. They get voted down. That's why I like using the phrase, attach the money to the kids, which is the same thing, but explains it better. People say that'll hurt the public schools if you allow vouchers. It'll suck out the, the best kids. The truth is that competition makes the public schools better, too. <clears throat> and it's hard to know this because the stranglehold held by the unions and the educational establishment has not allowed in this vast country very many experiments with vouchers. But there have been a few tiny ones. Milwaukee, the first, is a good example. The Milwaukee superintendent at the time when they allowed this small experiment said, the idea that competition is going to spark improvement has no basis in fact. But Harvard economist Carolyn Hoxby 
prove that he was wrong. She studied the schools and found that the voucher schools, the kids were doing better. No surprise there, but the surprise was that the public schools got better too because they had to compete. Scores are up 7% in math, 8% in science. They got rid of the teachers who weren't teaching because they saw the threat. And this should be no surprise here at Cato. We know that competition makes us better. And the schools didn't lose money either. The voucher that Milwaukee spends over $11,000 per student, the vouchers were worth $4,000 less. And the schools now spend more on the public schools than they did before vouchers. Myth. The voucher schools will uh, take away the best kids and leave the public schools with the problem kids, the special needs kids, because the private schools won't want to take them. Here, too, the truth is that the vouchers will help the special needs kids, too. And we know this from a Florida experiment called McKay Scholarships for special needs kids. They vary in price from four dollars to $20,000. And private schools are competing to get these kids because they come with the money attached. And they're doing a wonderful job. I interviewed a mother who was crying with fear because she thought, because of a Florida Supreme Court decision, that her kids might have to go back to the public schools. She said, this school is doing so much better. My, my kids are happy to be in school now. They used to cry and say, please don't make me go to school, Mommy, and resist going. She didn't want to go back to that. Why should she have to? I talked to one grandmother whose grandson came home and said, Grandma, they're teaching me how to cheat. He was an ADD kid, and in fact, part of the No Child Left Behind law, they were teaching to the test, and the teachers were worried that the, their school would suffer if the children didn't do well, so kids like him who were struggling, they were giving him the answers. He proudly said, Mommy, they're teaching me how to cheat. Grandma, they're teaching me how to cheat. Myth. Our K-12 public education system is one of the best parts of America. Truth. It's one of the worst parts about America. Everybody loves public education and points to it as one of America's greatest strength. It's sacrosanct, and yet it's been mediocre for decades. Can you imagine a system where everyone were assigned a grocery store? Grocery stores would stop trying. They, they wouldn't stock the products you want. There'd be empty shelves. The service would be lousy, as it is in the schools. Soon people would be moving to the neighborhoods with the good grocery stores. Silly as that sounds, we accept that with the public school system. Now, we didn't always have government-run schools in America. Kids became, became educated because someone in the community always cared about education. Somebody always wanted to teach the kids. Somebody always knew it was important, and people volunteered, and people learned. We were a very literate nation. But in 1830, Horace Mann said, we can make it better. We need state-run schooling. And uh, he said, as usual, the schemes of the collectivists are impressive. He said, once we have public schooling, nine-tenths of the crimes in the penal code will become obsolete. Obsolete. Now we have nine-tenths of the crimes of the penal code in the schools. <laughs> and certainly it got better, but it would have gotten better anyway. Someone in Massachusetts said, uh, resisting Horace Mann, the commencement of a system of centralization and monopoly of power in a few hands is contrary to the true spirit of democratic institutions. 
how right they were. Left on its own, schools would have gradually improved. There would have been a market. People like us would have helped the poor kids through private charity. To say government makes the schools better reminds me of Charles Jeffries, who in this town used to run OSHA under President Clinton, was fond of holding up a chart showing, look how workplace injuries have dropped since OSHA was created. And it was true, they had dropped. But then some researchers looked at the data from the time before OSHA's creation, and they found they were dropping then too. The slope of the line was the same. As people get smarter and have more choices, life gets better. Government is like someone who jumps in front of a parade and claims to be leading the parade. What would we have if we really had competition? I don't know. I think it's a fatal conceit to predict what markets would provide. My tiny brain can't begin to imagine it, but I will try. I could think there would be Walmart schools, cheap schools that might meet all year, sports schools, music schools, science schools, computer schools where kid would learn, kids would learn virtually, wouldn't have to make a long commute if they lived out in the country. We'd see more experiments like the KIPP charter schools, where kids are in school till 5 o'clock, closer to when the parents are getting off from work, and they're in school every other Saturday. And every teacher is given a cell phone and must be available to the kids until 9 o'clock in the evening to answer homework questions or other questions, and the kids call constantly. Maybe parents, when they say, oh, my kid could have had that, maybe then they too will start asking for choice. But competition is what the myth book is about and the Cato Institute is about, would be great for schools too. It would let a thousand flowers bloom. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have time for some questions or criticism? Or? Yes, we'll, we'll bring microphones around after John calls on you. Wait until the microphone gets there. And I would just remind everybody that audio and video of this speech, as well as previous John Stossel speeches, can be found on the Cato website, cato.org. And so I'm going to ask the first question, John. I notice you have an endorsement on the back of the book from the co-author of Freakonomics, which has been a huge best-selling phenomenon. And I just wonder, I guess that makes sense because your book and Freakonomics challenge conventional wisdom, look at actual research, use logic. I wonder if you see that kind of connection. I'm not an economist, but I keep doing stories on economics, maybe because Walter Williams says... It's not intuitive economics. And maybe that's the similarity with some of the Freakonomics issues. Uh, Williams made a point I heard recently that I enjoyed. The minimum wage, which is another minimum, which is another myth in the book. Myth that that will help low-income workers. And it's true if you make the naive assumption that every employer has a fixed number of workers. Then if you raise the minimum wage, they'll make more. But it just leaves out the fact that employers will not hire some people on the margins. And we used to have people washing our windshields in gas stations. We no longer do because it no longer pays the gas station to give a kid a shot, the opportunity. So the seen benefit of the law is always obvious. The unseen harm is harder to see, and that's just true with a lot of economics. 
Was that an answer? I don't, I'm not sure, but Question. my best shot. Whoever has the microphone, please uh, just raise your hand, grab the mic. You can pick them. You mentioned that uh, the envy of wealth. I, I think it's, I got another theory, and I like your comments. I think it's the humiliation that someone with a PhD gets when he sees someone without a college degree and an entrepreneur making, paying more taxes than he's making. I think it humiliates them. Well, it's, it may be true. I've heard that theory that the, the Ivy Tower intellectuals are furious that the entrepreneurs are making more money than they are. But I don't think it's just about the pointy-headed intellectuals. Lots of people hate businesses. I don't have a great answer. It's people hate the system that has helped our lives more than any and could do so much more. We still have three billion people on earth living on a dollar or two a day. We know what works. Free Economic freedom would help them, but we sneer at it in newsrooms. Uh, there are people here. Just bring a mic. What really opened your eyes to the free market and uh, what can we do to get other reporters and other people in the media to understand what's really out there. I'm embarrassed among this group to say it took me a long time to have my eyes open to the free market. I wrote about it in my last book called Give Me a Break, actually. There's a chapter called Epiphany, which was misleading because that implies sudden, and it was really slow. I had an unusual ringside seat on the regulatory state as a consumer reporter, and I was cheering them on. Yes, these, we would take a TV set into a bunch of repair shops. It would have a loose tube, and some of them would rip us off. Some would just put the tube in. And we'd say three cheers to them and to the ones who charged us $200. We'd go in and confront them, and they would deny it. And I'd say, oh, yeah, watch this, and I'd show the tape, and it was great television. And then the politicians would call and say, oh, that was terrible. We're going to pass a law to fix this. And the young, John, the young John Stossel reporter loved this. Oh, I'm so important. The politicians are paying attention to me, and I'm responsible for a law being passed. And they'd create the Consumer Affairs Department, and they'd license TV repair shops. And, but I kept... I stayed on the beat, so a year later I could see that now they, everybody had to be licensed. There was a new bureaucracy... More bureaucrats had jobs. Companies had to hire lawyers to jump through the hoops and license people. The people hurt most were the immigrant who wanted to repair TV sets and didn't know how to go through all this licensing trouble. People still cheated. The rules didn't even work on the obvious crooks like the people selling the breast enlargers and the burn fatly asleep pills. They just burdened everybody with a spider web of freedom-killing rules. And I slowly saw that the market policed consumer action far better. And then I discovered Reason Magazine, which explains a lot of this, and the Cato Institute, which explains it too. But it, it's not intuitive for, for dumb people like me. Other questions? Just grab a mic, whoever. Give somebody a mic, Raphael. Then we can go, this is television. No, we've got to <laughs> give a mic to a... You mentioned that D.C. spends $14,000 per year per student in its public schools. The DC. The DC public schools spend perhaps fifty percent more, perhaps twice as much per pupil as the DC parochial schools. Have you compared the DC Catholic schools to the public schools? I think you'll find that the the record of achievement of the students in the Catholic schools is much better. 
It is much better. I have not compared it in D.C. I compared it in New York, where they're spending about 13000 on the government schools and 5000 on the Catholic schools. The graduation rate from the Catholic schools is 98%, 49% from the public schools. Now, the public school teachers say, well, that's because the Catholic schools kick out the troublemakers. And that's true that they can, but they almost never do. And they do take from roughly the same population as the public schools. But, of course, the parent and the kid knowing you could be kicked out does help focus the mind. But they do so much better with so much less money. No question about it. Would you say that um, the public today, a myth, a myth or a fact? Would you stand up just because we can't find you here? Here I am. Would you say the public today, this is a myth or a fact, are angry with the CEOs of large corporations who are walking away with such um, outlandish or outrageous benefit packages so that the employees who want to do a good job are not benefiting? Is that a myth or a fact? So that And business does create jobs, but is this a myth or a fact? And if it's a it's fact... Clear, it's clearly a, a truth that... People are ticked off at these CEOs and the $400 million retirement package for the Exxon chair. Now, it's one thing if it's options, if it's supposed to be correlating to the growth of the company. And Exxon did grow by $25 billion when he was at the helm. Does he deserve it? I doubt it. Is it maybe cronies on the board of directors paying off a friend? Maybe. I don't know. But the perfect is the enemy of the good. It's like free speech. We, we love free speech. We need free speech. But with that comes hate speech and obscenity. With capitalism comes some gross excess. So, but, but I don't know if, if Exxon's the only one. I don't think that... No, it's not the only one. There so are plenty of overpaid CEOs. Though a Cato study, I understand, found that uh, the people who are paid the most generally perform the best. Is that a Cato study? I just read that. No, I think it was uh, Tyler Cowen's column in the New York Times, and I think it wasn't a study from here. Whoever has the mic. Yes, yes, sir. John, I love your stuff. Come on, right? I, lo- I love your stuff. You're wonderful. I just have a difficult problem. You're, you're really optimistic that if we get more competition, we'll get improved uh, public education. In Albany, New York, where I live, we have a ton of charter schools opening, and the school board's answer is just raise our taxes, raise our taxes, raise our taxes, raise our taxes. Um, and they, they don't seem to be responding to the competition as such. I, can we really be that optimistic that we'll get the reform we need in the short term? I, I'm not so sure. In the short term, maybe not. It takes time for competition to work. And New York has a law that limits the number of charter schools. So I don't think you can say that we've given this experiment a chance to work. Plus, we've got 50 states, thousands of school districts. Can't we have some experimentation? Critics of charter schools often say, no, they'll fail. Look at this charter school. It, we had to close it because this or that happened. Or look at these private-run prison systems. Look at this terrible company we had to close. But that's the point. Allowing some to fail is what makes the system work and allows the good companies to thrive. Whoever has the mic or question? Um, John, I'm here. <laughs> There you are. Okay. Um, would, you, would you stand up? or Then everybody can see you. Why don't you say who you are? Um, 
Uh, I'm a multilingual guide, a tour guide in the city, and I want to say that I have students from all over the world. And I'm sorry to say that they are a step ahead of our students, and we really have to resolve that. Uh, their history and geography knowledge is absolutely marvelous. I'm talking about non-American kids. It's certainly true that there are cultural differences that may explain why kids in Korea, say, outperform American kids. Uh, and the teachers, after Stupid in America aired, uh, wrote many angry letters about how I didn't understand what they have to deal with. Kids whose parents don't give a damn, kids who are disrespectful, kids who haven't been taught to respect learning. And this is all true. However, that doesn't explain why the American kids do fine in fourth grade and badly by twelfth grade. That's the school system. Hi, David Yumberg of George Mason University. I'm a big fan of your work, too. You were my first, one of my first introductions to classical liberty, and I always wanted to thank you for that. But you said something that concerned me, because you said if we had competition, we would have Walmart schools. And I'm sure that's true, and that's a great description. But I also know people who are skeptical hear Walmart, and they say, oh, they recoil, and like, that's bad. And we, I learned we have to be really careful when we use our language. And as you noted, there's this, this rhetoric war going on, and liberty is kind of losing that war. So how would you recommend that we better fight that, that we choose our words more carefully? So I shouldn't use the phrase Walmart schools? Well, I say that the hell with it. That uh, I will defend Walmart. I actually hate to because its CEO doesn't seem to respect the market principles that has made the company successful, but it sure delivers goods efficiently. And if we had competition and the Walmart schools were lousy, parents wouldn't send their kids to those schools. Uh, maybe you're right, and I should be careful not to use wor bad words like vouchers and Walmart, but I'd rather say we, I, I'm going to just keep trying to educate the public that these ideas are good. I just, I, the mic isn't coming through here. How do you recommend that we better put forth the case for free markets and for liberty on the rhetoric? How can you better put forth the case for free markets and liberty? I don't know. I'm trying to occasionally do stories on it on 2020. When I do, I have a charity, a nonprofit that tries to introduce them into high schools to just try to explain these ideas that enlarged my brain so much when I learned them. I, I wish... We could encourage businesses to speak up more because they're getting crushed in the public debate. The activists are eager to go on television and say why business is evil, and the business is worried about being uh, saying something wrong, being sued, and so they timidly say no comment. Hence, capitalism loses the debate. Though I, I don't even, I'm not even sure that's the case because. Half the CEOs are not articulate at defending the free enterprise that made their success possible. And business, when they can game the system and collude with government to cheat a competitor, will be eager to do that, too. I guess it's up to you folks at George Mason University to educate the whole country. <laughs> uh, John, tell, tell us a little more about Stossel in the classroom, if you would. Okay, Stossel in the Classroom is a 501c that I hope to be starting. I, uh, 
somebody else had been distributing ABC's tape, but I believe ABC now wants me to do it myself, and uh, we're offering scholarships to teachers who request these tapes, and they are now being used in most of the public high schools in America. Pieces like, Is America Number One?, which asks the question, Why is America prosperous? The kids say, Oh, it's because America had natural resources. It was a new country. Then we say, well, India has natural resources. They say, oh, India is overpopulated. We point out, well, the population density of India is the same as that of New Jersey. New Jersey's doing okay. Population of Hong Kong is 20 times as many people per square foot. And Hong Kong is rich. It's gone from third world poverty to Britain level of wealth in just 50 years. What's the reason for prosperity? It's economic freedom. Hong Kong is just a rock, as Milton Friedman says, but because the British rulers kept the peace and you need rule of law to make sure I don't take your stuff or hurt you. And then they just sat around and drank tea. <laughs> and they left free people alone to create their own prosperity, and they did. These are the lessons I hope to share with the high school kids. Would you agree that the probably the fundamental reason we don't have educational choice in this country is laziness. That for most people, it is simply easier to know that their child is going to go to the neighborhood school. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to pay for it. It's just one less thing to worry about. And how do we deal with that? Well, that's true. It is easier. But how did we deal with that with the phone monopoly? It was easier when I just had Ma Bell and I didn't have to go through these hellish choices. But frankly, I like having cheap phone calls and multicolored cell phones that take pictures. And I think when your neighbor has it and you don't, you start to want it. Mr. Stossel? Oh. Yes. Patrick Ashby, National Right to Work Foundation. You talked a little bit today about how teachers' unions have betrayed our children. I was wondering if you might give us a general overview of what your, um, your view on a good labor policy might be. Well, I'm no student of labor law. I'm, I'm aware that the unions have extra power because of legislation that offer, often requires unions, teachers, to join and pay dues just to teach even if they don't want to join. And collective bargaining should be a good thing. And uh, I think these laws that forbid public workers to strike feels unjust. And yet my experience in my lifetime with unions has been awful. I have to join a union to work on television. I have no choice. I don't want to join, but I'm forced to join. I see the effect of unions around me in television. If you want to have a prop on the set on a Columbus Day, Say a slice of pizza can cost hundreds of dollars because a prop man has to touch it, a set decorator. Uh, there's a third person in there, like a stage manager. It's very complicated. And you see these guys in the control rooms, and they're bored. They don't like their jobs. They'll fight tooth and nail for the pay and the work rules, but they haven't been able to grow in their work. You see the same thing in the troubles GM is having while the non-unionized Japanese companies are thriving. The unions do help those workers who are there at the moment, but then they hurt the workers forevermore. So that's sort of an uneducated rant, but that's been my experience with unions, and I'll stop there. Hello, Mr. Stossel. Wonderful to see you today. 
I'm wondering, do you think that the reason China and India are starting to eat our lunch is because they are starting to move away from centralized economy and towards more free market economy? I think so, and there's a wonderful article in Reason this month about Bangalore versus Detroit. And why was India so poor for so long? That was another part of the Is America Number One program. Because look how well Indians do when they come to America or go to China. But India adopted the socialist ruling system of its neighbors, and you had to get 25 permits to buy a computer at one point. It was only when India started to loosen up these rules that Bangalore and other parts of India thrived. And even then, you could see it happen. It happened in the places, parts of India, that loosened the rules. I'm Jin Suk Lee from Korea. Um, you said that some of the um, a lot of uh, Korean students uh, outperform the American students, but uh, on the other hand, I feel a little bit, you know, um, at loss because a lot of Korean parents, um, t- uh, tens of thousands of Korean parents, send their children over to the United States, thinking that the U.S. educational system is better than the Korean educational system. And it is true that um, most of the students, m- most of the Korean students who study here, um, perform uh, better than their uh, peers, um, perhaps. And um, I uh, have. Um, um, now I'm thinking of uh, uh, thinking that perhaps the difference lies not in the educational system, but in the families or in the parents. What is your what are your thoughts about that? You make two points, and I certainly agree. It lies with the parents in Korea, and the respect for learning and drive is instilled by the parents. But if Korean parents are sending their kids to America to be educated, there are two possible answers. One is suckers. Or two, I assume you're speaking mostly of higher education. And the American higher education system is the best in the world. But the difference there is we have a market. We have market competition. Even this horrible word vouchers was used in America, the GI Bill, which was nothing more than a voucher after World War II, which allowed the soldiers to take the tuition money to any school, religious, public, private, Uh, And that's what we have in higher education, and I think we have a lot of problems in higher education, and the cost of it is going up far faster than gas prices, and yet people are freaked out about gas prices but not higher education. I don't get that. But they are – but there you have a market, and it works. Um, Just for your – um, I'm not just talking about higher education. Uh, these days, especially especially in recent years, um, uh, parents of uh, uh, children who are under 10 years old send uh, their children over to the United States, thinking that uh, U.S. public schools um, are better than you know the Korean education. I, I don't, of course, I don't want to argue with you, but uh, just for your information. Well, I didn't look at Korea specifically, so I don't have a good answer. We, I, we just looked at the averages from these countries. And certainly in Korea, you're spending nowhere near the $10,000 per student we spend here. Maybe parents there believe that that brings the buildings look nicer, so maybe that's the difference. Let's take one last question right here. Uh, Mr. Sasso, uh, about four years ago, you did a TV special on a subject that's very dear to Cato's heart. It was called War on Drugs, War on Ourselves. I'm just wondering if, in the intervening time, you see any progress towards more sensible drug policies. No. 
<laughs> I see a war on drugs that does far more harm than the drugs. And thank you very much. Thank you, John.